Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm gonna be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This has got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right, don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. Hi, this is Ruben off this cheek. This is William. I'm Mason Mount. You're listening to the London is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another, that's right, another episode of the London is Blue podcast, your hopefully favorite Chelsea podcast, or maybe one of them. They're in your rotation. Brandon, again, just, you know, can't find him. It's a little bit like Where's Waldo? You just can't pick him out on the page. But you know what? Can always find a Nick Verlaney. <laughs> Nick, you're here, and you're going to talk some Chelsea with me. That is correct. And if you've seen Brandon around, uh, especially in the Las Vegas area, will you will you tell him that we we miss him? You know, to come back home. You know, he's been out in the wilderness for a while. Uh, you know, hopefully he's not skint of all money. But um, but hopefully we get him back for upcoming episodes. Excited to talk with the illustrious, wonderful Joe Tweets to do a little bit of State of the Union. It's a little bit of a different episode that we're trying, but excited to have Joe back on to talk all things Chelsea per usual. Yeah, hey guys, yeah, good to uh, good to be back, and uh, yeah, looking forward to diving into this. I think this is a pretty interesting time in the uh, in the Chelsea. Uh, in the life of the this this insane club that we all love and, uh, and hold dear, yeah. Joe, do you do you have odds on you know Brandon's trip to Vegas? Will he come back with a Mike Tyson style face tattoo? Yes or no? <laughs> oh, I'd love that. But wouldn't it be amazing if it was like if it was like the Tottenham Hotspur cockerel or like the Arsenal oh. cannon? Just just he just completely got it wrong on the day, and then he has to live with that for a good period of time. That would be incredible. Oh, all right. Well, I'm looking forward to Brandon listening back and hearing how he got on without him here. If there's anyone out there with any sort of Photoshop skills that wanted to, let's just say, put that out in the world, just let us know. We're, we're well, in. well. To be to be fair, Chidge did make you know, when you were on Joe the the boy band comment about uh, about us. London is blue. And uh, one of our listeners uh, did, in fact, put together a boy band photo with uh, our faces photoshopped <laughs> on. And, uh, who's yeah. who's the lead singer? Oh, that's uh, a good question. I don't know. I had the best hair, I think, so that was pretty great. Um, I had some. I had guns uh, or some 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 arm cannons that were way larger than my arms in in real life. That yeah, was damn, uh, that, that was actually kind of nice. Yeah. <laughs> much like much like Joe, you've been doing all of your uh, all of your guns building. Uh, exercises to to get on the show <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> uh, he's, it, joe's on the adama Traore plan right now he's uh he's really trying to muscle up for 2020 um <laughs> sp- 
Speaking of uh, muscling up, we, we did get a more funny or humorous question to start the uh, the episode here from from Discord from our friend Brent, just asking. Well, he asked Tweets if he can get on the other end of a cross and put it on the frame, <laughs> asking for my friend Frank. <laughs> um, being being about five foot ten, I'm not sure how uh, how aggressively I would be in the box. I, I used to play holding midfield or central midfield back in the day, so I was uh, and, and more more known for long distance shots and getting on the end of the crosses. So I'm not sure how helpful I'd be to this current Chelsea team, given the fact that we're crossing it about 7,000 times a game at the moment. So, All right, well, we'll let Scott and Marina and the rest of the team know that that might not be the best acquisition exactly, yeah. for this window. Yeah. I don't quite have Zion Williamson hops either. So, I mean, it's not... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so theme of the episode today, Nick, it is, it's the state of the Chelsea union. That is right. We are... You know, there, there's so much going on, as Joe said, with this insane club that we we just needed to, I think, take a beat and and kind of talk through all of the happenings, all of the things that, you know, kind of impact our chances at top four and beyond. And so we just wanted to kind of consolidate that all into a, a normal-ish episode that isn't a match review so that we could kind of get out of that format. But yeah, excited to to dive deep. Uh, to get Joe's perspective on things. And, uh, you know, I think it'll be a fun episode that will probably have more questions than answers. Yeah, it's uh, it's like the uh, season or series finale I've lost. You know, it's really just going to uh, make your head kind of work in, uh, in overdrive <laughs> there. Anyway, but on our buffet of topics ahead, we're going to cover while Chelsea will most likely not sign anyone by the end of the transfer window. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Chelsea's current standing and discussing Lampard is... With our reboot, our Chelsea 3.0 or 4.0, whatever version that we're on, is ahead of, on, or maybe behind schedule. And then we'll talk about the segments of the team that are helping or hurting Chelsea's overall quest to return to being a dominant power in global football. But before we get in, some of the news that happened uh, early last week, uh, in addition to the Chelsea Twitter admin just being absolutely taking shots at everybody who keep on asking to announce a player, saying you wait 24 days for a signing, and then three, with the capital T, come along at once. We no longer have Yokohama Tires, with a Y, as the shirt sponsor heading into next season, Nick. Moment of silence, I think. Moment of silence for the global tire partner. <laughs> R.I.P. Um, to, to Yokohama. A, a great five years, uh, which is crazy because... I think we remember when when Samsung left. Uh, that was kind of a they did like an in memoriam like ten year video thing. It was it was it was really sweet and also kind of sad, Joe. But how how do you feel about uh, three taking over from Yokohama? <laughs> it's okay, yeah, uh, the moratorium for the for the time. <laughs> That's when that made me laugh. Um, I think, and maybe this is is me with my with my business hat on here, but it's it's another. Kind of step for, for Chelsea in, in, in their kind of sort of unique commercial strategy. So, the people sort of slightly unfamiliar. Chelsea probably actually since uh, since they got rid of Samsung have have kind of targeted mid to sort of upper mid tier brands as opposed to um, you know going for the the elite of the elite when it comes in in terms of sponsorship. So, I think Yokohama are you know okayish or decentish tyres, but they're not Pirelli and, and you know Hyundai being the car sponsor for example and and you know, we have Carabao, not Red Bull, and there's there's loads of examples of Chelsea going for the slightly uh, mid-tier companies. And three, I think, reflect this as well in terms of their position in at least in the UK market. They're certainly not uh, not one of the the, the the bigger or better kind of brands that you'd have for sort of mobiles or or uh, you know, as you say, for for wireless um, providers. So I think again, it's an, it's another interesting move for the club. I'd be I'd be tempted to, I would say, I would be very interested in seeing the figures that they have for this deal. Um, You'd have to think that it would surpass the the Yokohama deal. Otherwise, you know why why sort of look to, to move them on if they if they couldn't sort of just re, re, uh, renew that that current existing partnership that they had. So it's going to be interesting to see what sort of money is on the table from three. But I think again, it's a it's another push in this commercial direction that Chelsea are taking by by going for less uh, less let's say less established, but they're not like an unestablished fan, but less established or less higher tier brands that actually Chelsea can. Can can market themselves in a slightly more attractive way. It's it's more beneficial for the for the the company to be associated with Chelsea and have that association, you know, than uh, having a company that's uh, you know like Samsung or or Pirelli or one of these sort of more more known companies. You know, that there's not as much incentive for them to 
to have uh, you know Chelsea as a as a shirt sponsor. So um, yeah, it, it's it's interesting from that perspective. Um, I think obviously the money is is really all that anybody cares about in terms of what's on the table. But you know, I think again, it's a uh, it's it's another interesting move, and also I think the the terms were for th- I think it was for three years as well, which is also quite ironic. But um, so they seem to have gone for a shorter period of time in terms of the the deal that they've had um, with with the company. So again, I think it's given them some flexibility, both in terms of potentially buying themselves out if the market shifts dramatically in uh, in the favour of, of attracting more money, or um, just to get, keep a shorter shorter partnership in there for them to to manoeuvre um, and, and maybe re-sign if they if they would like to as well. So yeah, it's it's all interesting on the business side of things, but I think it's uh, it's just one of those little uh, cool things to note that Chelsea's sort of strategy of, of going for sort of middle tier partners is is working both in terms of commercial um, benefit, but also in terms of just the, the marketing structure and the marketing philosophy that that the club have got in play at the moment. Yeah, I would I would quickly add to this, and and I think it's important to note. You know, Chelsea did not wait until the deal was like officially up. They did this a little bit ahead of time to kind of make a transition point. Whereas if you kind of remember back a few years ago, it felt much more like stop start. Um, so that's an interesting thing. And I think helps kind of get ahead of this. Uh, likely, you know, a lot of these huge companies run on a, a January fiscal year. So their budgets would have reset. And so. You know, this was a really good moment for for Chelsea to try and find one of those partners instead of looking at you know August, um, you know where where budgets may not be as plentiful on the marketing side. Uh, I, you know, Dan and I were talking about this uh, before the uh, before the show. Uh, it, it's really it will be very interesting to see uh, how the market does shift over the next handful of years from you know the front of the shirt sponsor, the sleeve sponsor to what I anticipate will be digital content sponsorships and and more things that are kind of in line with what Chelsea's doing at the fist stand at, for example. I think there there could be a time in the not so distant future where a front of shirt sponsor is not really that important uh, in terms of revenue that's being generated. And instead the club focus on experiences for fans or uh, you know ways that they can uh, use that money to to sponsor content or to do, you know, other tours in America or, or Asia or whatever. So that that's just kind of me putting my marketing slash business hat on and and kind of uh, analyzing how that will look in the future. But I think for the from the aesthetic standpoint, Dan, uh, I'm praying that it is the the word three that is on the shirt instead of the number. Uh, please God, let it be the word three. Well. The, all I have to do is look at the photo of the announcement, which have the Chelsea badge and then the number three, and I, I don't think that is going to be the case. So uh, just, you know, expect the worst and hope for the best. That's, that's the <laughs> easiest thing to do sometimes in life. Uh, I will say that our friend Liam Toomey, who is also at the Athletic, uh, much like Simon Johnson, said that he was told the deal is comparable in value to the expiring $40 million a year Yokohama partnership. So uh, we keep Yokohama as our global tires partner because, you know, you always need wheels. And we get three as our wireless slash shirt sponsor. And, you know, there was some stuff about upgrades to cellular connectivity in the ground. And uh, I remember some some not so great experiences running on three, maybe our first time over there. So hopefully that helps. Because uh, yeah. that, that would be nice. Joe, how have we survived all this time without a global tire sponsorship? You know, I, 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 I don't know. I feel like we're, we're so far behind the, the curve. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's probably the reason that we've, uh, we've not been able to sign anyone in January. You know, so <laughs> I'm glad that the club have got its priorities in order. And, and hopefully next we'll have a, uh, I don't know, a global paperclip sponsorship and uh, maybe something else equally as, uh, equally as important. You don't know <laughs> yeah, stationary we'll, we'll is life, get, so yeah, maybe we'll, uh, we'll get a, a global... Stationary is life. Get Microsoft yeah. to resurrect uh, Clippy from Word. and uh, we'll Clippy from Word, and, and maybe we'll get a sponsorship with Bic, the Biro, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> need to get uh, well, our priorities speaking, in, we need to get all of our priorities in order before we sign any players. Uh, speaking of how money flows into and makes transfers happen, uh, transfer, transfer, transfers, the first thing that we want to talk about, maybe, maybe we can get out of the way. Uh, from being connected with players like Dembele to, to Cavani to Sancho, Werner, and, and beyond. You know, we we kind of hit it on this at the end of our last podcast, reviewing the whole City match. But Chelsea are probably very unlikely to sign players before the close of the January window. And, and Joe, uh, this is something that people always look to you when they kind of at you on Twitter. But 
you know, when the when the push for top four is so critical to help us sign play you know quality players in the summer, it, you know, is it more of a wrong time? Key targets players not available. Is it potentially related to the financial reporting where where Chelsea posted a pretty hefty loss due to maybe a decline in player sales? Like, you know, what what percentage of the problem? Like, if you were to break it out of a hundred, where, where does the where the percentages or main parts of the problem lie? I mean, I, I think a big part of it is the as you mentioned the the financials. Um, you know, they're not ideal if you want to go and spend a, a big a big sort of lump of money on on any kind of player in January. Um, so I certainly think that there is an element of the club thinking that if they can essentially get by the season without spending a penny, um, obviously the the Kovacic signing um then you know they've they've kind of almost sort of bought themselves a bit of time to catch up where it comes from a from a financial perspective so that that is uh certainly an angle there i, th- I think partly it also comes down to the fact that uh you know i think that the club have potentially sort of learned a little bit from from some of the mistakes they've made in the past when it comes to recruitment and you know i often think that we've we've sort of gone and signed players as, as stop gaps and then they've become kind of permanent fixtures in the squad and then you, you can't shift them. And I think we've seen that somewhat with with some of the players that we have out on loan at the moment. Guys like, you know, maybe Victor Moses and Drinkwater, Bakayoko, Morata. I mean, we've got an awful lot of money invested in these guys and they're currently not kicking a football for Chelsea, which I think the club are trying to sort of distance themselves from that sort of buying, I don't want to call it philosophy because it doesn't really imply that there's any sort of thought behind it, but that sort of approach that they've taken uh, historically. So I think there's an element of that in there. Um, I mean, personal opinion, the only real player that Chelsea have been super interested in signing in January is is Wilfred Zaha. And I think once that, that Palace put that enormous £80 million valuation on him and once those wage demands started leaking out of around £200,000 a week, you know, I always kind of thought that that would be sort of, de- you know, kind of dead in the water a little bit in terms of um, Chelsea sort of being, or seeing that as a viable option for them to sign. So, you know, once you kind of get that out of the way, I mean, you've got a lot of unrealistic options. Um, you know, your Jaden Sancho's, your Timo Werner's, your whoever else you want to sort of throw into that bucket, I think are very, very unrealistic at this point in time. Personally, I would have liked to have seen the club go and grab a left back, but I think we, we heard pretty early that they weren't looking at defensive options. And that also is probably why Nathan Ake was, was sort of uh, kind of dismissed as a, a potential player that we would buy as well. So, you know, the, the focus appears to have been on primarily players who are either super creative or you know can can score goals and the links to to Dembele and to Edison Cavani have been very interesting I'm not, I'm not sure Cavani ever really would would have desired to have come to Chelsea um I, I'm very very certain that he doesn't speak a word of English and you know Chelsea I think at the moment or at least in terms of the the media reports are suggesting that they just want to loan him until the end of the season and I, you know, I just can't see that being something that the player wants to go for is at a period in his career now where I suppose he if he's moving, it's it's a kind of his last club, and he wants to settle in maybe for before going back and playing in South America at some point. But you know, he's uh, he's much more obviously akin to going playing in the Spanish culture than the Premier League at this point in his career. And uh, while I think Dembele is an interesting player, and and Leon are certainly signing players to to suggest that they're kind of you know kind of preparing for a a time without Dembele. But I, again, I can only see him really being a player that moves um, in the summer if if, if he does move. Um, and again, I think you're you're possibly you know kind of having to pay drastically over the odds for someone like Dembele in January to to be to be secure in in the fact that you can you can take him from from Leon at this point in the season. So I'm not sure really if, if there's been an absolute you know enormous amount of options out there, particularly players that Chelsea have been have been genuinely interested in signing. You know, just because you think a player is is decent and plays in a position of need, it doesn't necessarily mean that the club have been have any sort of interest in them. So. You know, if they are taking more of a, a longer-term view and taking a bit more of a sensible view on who they sign, for me, that does explain a little bit why we haven't just gone a bit scattergun and just done the usual Chelsea thing of, of bringing in a player who kind of sort of fits the need. Maybe they fit the need for the next six months, but they're on a five-year contract or whatever. So you know, I think the approach has been to, to maybe just sit and wait. And, and you know, it's a bit of a gamble, you could say, you know, keeping this, this group of players to the end of the season and just hoping that they can finish in the top four. But I think the club have weighed that up versus the potential of of going out and just either overpaying drastically for a player or bringing in players who maybe um, aren't part of that long-term vision. So I think yeah. there's a lot of elements in play. I mean, you, as you say, the financial element is definitely there, but I think it's also a, a kind of a pretty significant part that there are players at Chelsea interested in, but they're just not available in January at the moment. Yeah, I would, I would say this, and, and we've kind of talked about it. The, the gamble is 
you know, if, if you don't sign anybody and you don't make top four, that impacts your ability to sign anybody uh, over the summer. Um, if you do sign, you know, maybe or, or get a loan player in or, or something like that, and you do make top four, while you, while you might have spent a little bit of money in the interim to get there, it certainly opens up Werner and Sancho and, and the types of players that I think most Chelsea fans want to see the club buy. Um, so I guess in, in terms of how I'm feeling about this, I mean, the, the option, or at least the, the, the rumor was that there were a couple of potential loan players from larger clubs that weren't seeing a whole lot of playing time that it could be fits for Chelsea, like a Luka Jovic or, or, you know, someone like that. I think if, if that was seriously out there, regardless of, of what doubts there may be about, uh, Jovic and, and kind of the down season he's had. I think you have to kind of take a run at that, right, Dan? Because, I mean, you need people. <laughs> I think you need bodies at this point. And if you can get them on loan and it's not going to, to bankrupt you, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it, it's a tough push and pull moment and the, the sticker twist element to where we're at this season, where clearly if we're going to think about maintaining our position in top four, if we're thinking about uh, pushing to try and advance in the the Champions League or maybe win the FA Cup, that the the shot side looks short uh, of having that you know additional one one and a half players that can can rotate in and, and help support. Obviously, we've seen some uh, photos of Ruben Loftus Cheek back in in first team training this week, and that was really exciting. But you know we know that he's going to be coming up from a couple of the the youth teams first and getting some minutes under his belt before we see him and. Yeah, you know, I think at this point, if we see him before the end of March in the first team, that would probably be uh, ahead of where I think he's going to be at. So I'm not counting on him on being an immediate support and immediate change and uh, helping twist our fortunes. But I, I, you know, going back to Joe's point there, just on, you know, the club maybe learning from the mistakes. I, I think it, it's rolling the dice and it, it's potentially trying to see this out with what we have and as frustrated as people might be or as you know we've still even through some pretty terrible results found ourselves in, in top four still and you know i guess joe how how risky do you think it is maybe for those who are kind of wondering about the risk you know are we gambling too much or do we feel like we we should at least make one signing to to shore it up and and it, you know maybe is that is there one signing that would get us over the line and i i think if the answer is no then you have to try to gamble um, I mean, personally, I would have I would have exercised the option on uh, on Nathan Ake. Um, even I think even if you just play him at left back and then sell him in the summer, uh, I think he's he's more than capable of, of deputising centre back in midfield and left back. And I think he he is an experienced international and Premier League competent body that you can add to the squad for very little money, um, with the potential of being able to sell him for, for for sort of a little bit more whatever in the in the summer if you really want to get rid of him. Um, I mean, if you're not so keen on that, I mean, again, I, I probably would have just gone and, and paid the money for for, for Zaha. Um, not really someone that I value with that money or that I value with that wages. But if you have a a problem and it's been identified and it's, it feels pretty clear, at least to to Lampard and, and to the, the coaching staff, I think the comments after the whole game kind of very strongly sort of intimated that you know the sort of chance creation and the quality of those chances and the goals. That's sort of something that they were looking to address. And then, then maybe, I'm not saying Zaha is the most prolific player in the world, but I think that he has a positive influence in that area of the pitch and he's available. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's an enormous gamble because, again, I think they are placing a lot of, uh, or putting a lot of pressure on an eventual return of Loftus-Cheek, um, which is all well and good, but I mean, we don't know what kind of player he's going to be when he comes back into the into sort of the, the, the first-team equation for, for one thing and also when that's going to be. Um, you know, can we keep relying on all the other teams around us to, to keep dropping points? I mean, you know, the, the fact that we we increased our, our lead by one point on the, the, the team in fifth, even though we hadn't won in two games or whatever, you know, it was crazy that we're getting all of this luck fall our way and you can't really count on that for the rest of the season. So I think it's an enormous gamble. Um, I don't think it's necessarily one of those that if you bring a player in, it sort of you know undoes all the work that's happened with bringing in young players this season. I think it's something that complements it, but... I think that the club have just obviously taken a view of the situation. They've they've kind of either decreed or you know, they, they've kind of decided that 
the investment in a player of, of Zaha's ability maybe is, is not worth it at that sort of money for them that you know that they don't really need a defender at this point in time and that if they were to go buy an attacker you know even if there has been some genuine interest in, in Moussa Dembele maybe they're not paying the 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 fee that, that Leon would want to, to lose him in in January and again you know you'd have to have to kind of uh, think a little bit also about the implications for the with the system, you know, will, will Dembele play as a winger? Will Chelsea start playing two men up front? There's a lot of different permutations about just adding, bringing in another striker. Um, you know, my, my kind of personal thoughts is that with, with Tammy being really the only goal threat that we have, that we need to add another goal threat, not just simply, um, you know, kind of bringing a, an alternative to, to the only goal threat that we have. So um, it's it's tricky. Um, it, for me, it, it is absolutely a risk. Um, but the, the problem being, if you if you can't think of, you know, five players really off the top of your head that are very obvious and 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 achievable in terms of buying them and, and whether they would have the desired impact, then to me that suggests that there maybe isn't the the quality of player out there that Chelsea would want in this window. And perhaps then they're, they're just thinking instead of, you know, kind of lumbering the squad with another player, another squad player, um, you know, who isn't really going to be a long-term player here, that they'll, they'll keep their money for the summer and, and hopefully if, uh, if things work out as they as they like in terms of finishing fourth, um, then, then they can they can reap the benefits there, but it's it's a big big risk. I mean, it's a big gamble, but uh, you know I think at the moment it's, it's way too early to tell where where that sort of uh, going to land. You know, I think we'll know more after the next handful of games that we've got. If we're still fourth after the next three four games, then you know, I think that there I'll be a little bit more confident. But it's 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 a big gamble for me. Well, we do have a very interesting February coming up with Leicester, with United, with Spurs, with Byron. And so, you know, kind of taking that and thinking about this Chelsea team as a whole, I mean, obviously no longer in the, the League Cup competition, but we have advanced the fifth round of the FA Cup. We're in the knockout stages of the Champions League. We're currently fourth in the Premier League, eight points behind third place Leicester, six points ahead of Spurs, United, and Wolves. So, Nick, how, how are you feeling about Chelsea's performance I mean, overall as a whole and all things considered? And would you say that we are ahead of on or behind schedule, taking everything into account, taking into the account that we, we couldn't sign players in the summer, that we have a, a brand new manager, Frank Lampard, who's in his second year as management, that we lost Ed Hazard in the uh, in the summer. Where, where are you rating us at right now? I mean, I think this team, you know, especially looking back at our, our preseason predictions and, and mine in particular, I had us finishing sixth based on that laundry list of, of things that were kind of working against us that you just ran off. Um, and, and so based on that and, and my own expectations, I'd say we're ahead of schedule. I think where I am so frustrated is that we could be comfortably third, you know, 13, 14 points ahead of, of fifth, sixth and seventh. And instead we're riding luck and other teams, bad performances, much like we did at the end of last season, and so that is the thing, Joe, that's a little scary to me is I think you I think it's right to praise the team for for even some of the growth that they've shown throughout the year. I think it's right to praise performances against Tottenham and Arsenal and and even losing to Liverpool at home. That was a good performance from this team. I, I think it's also fair to be frustrated with uh, lack of consistency and losing to teams that Chelsea have no business losing to in any season. Um, so I, you know, I, I still think we're ahead of schedule, but that's a, that's on a knife edge for me right now. Yeah, this is, uh, this is something that I've probably been thinking about a bit more recently and you know, at least in a little bit more depth than maybe I have done earlier in the season. But, uh, there's, there's a couple of factors here for me in terms of evaluating the team. So, you know, for, for probably five, six, six, seven seasons, whatever, this entire Chelsea structure has been based around getting the ball to Eden Hazard. I mean, he has been primarily the focal point of this team for such an enormous period of time. And, you know, while he's not uh, performing to the level that people maybe would have expected at Real Madrid, that sort of doesn't really kind of associate itself or correlate with with the impact that he had at Chelsea. So I think first and foremost, losing Hazard has been enormous. He is often the difference, um, whether directly or indirectly, in in these sort of close games that we've seen, he changes the way that teams defend against Chelsea. He would certainly, you know, kind of attract more attention than any player that we have. He had that ability, that spark to to settle and decide these tight games and all managers and all kind of uh, sort of various ways have, have kind of, you know, put a lot of uh, faith and, and rested really on his shoulders a lot of the time in terms of their kind of tactical structure. So if you remove Hazard from the equation, first and foremost, 
And then I, I think what we're really seeing this season, and if we're looking really at the coaching style that Chelsea now have, under, under Sari and Conte, Chelsea's team had uh, an enormously structured style of play. Um, you know, you could look at the, 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 the styles from Conte and Sari as being polar, polar opposites, but in terms of the, the way that they were coached, in terms of sort of the system and the setup, you know, this was very much an Italian style system. You know, okay, the 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 end goal was different in terms of you know the the sort of ways that Sari would want Chelsea to play in Conte, but the the kind of underlying tenets and principles are exactly the same. You use a lot of positional play during training. You've heard Eden Hazard talk about you know playing playing games against you know no opposition, and it's it's all about where you're positioned on the pitch and set patterns of play and set passing moves and set set ways of doing things and. I think really now looking back that 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 coaching style is is probably a way to um, certainly get more out of players who are not so uh, not really of the standard I think that that many, many Chelsea fans would have grown up seeing and you know it can transform a a fairly average player I always use Victor Moses as an example here so some are fairly average and then in Conte system as a right wing back you know he looks he looks a markedly better and more improved player same as you know Marcus Alonso on, on, in the left wing back spot as well so. When you have coaches who who simplify the decision making and remove the decision making abilities from the players, you know you have a set number of of ways of of passing it. So you know maybe Victor Moses when he receives the ball in three different places, he only has two decisions to make. So you know it simplifies the game for him, but also your teammates. Your teammates know that you're going to do A or B, so they can they can better predict themselves and therefore support you in a better way. We've had that structure in place for three seasons now, and I do think it generally, although the players probably don't enjoy it it's the way to get the best out of them in terms of their performances because when you're when you sort of take away that structure you actually see more of the, the player in their natural element and their natural talent i think that's what we're seeing this season particularly when we attack teams um and i think this is where now you're seeing lampards and and probably very heavily in terms of the the coaching philosophies of joe edwards and jody morris you know they were very lucky to have probably one of the, the best set of players pound for pound in their terms of the academy structure that they had so they could they could play this sort of expansive football and they could ask their players to, to solve problems and be more kind of independent, not have to play in such a structure. And I think what you're seeing now is, is we're at times we look very, very almost almost playing without structure at all in the final third. And I think this is often why we see the ball end up in these positions to cross and then crosses come in because, you know, teams defend narrow against us. So therefore the, the, the space is often in wide areas. So, if you are if you are not capable of making a, a difficult pass, you're going to take the easy option, which is quite often just to ship the ball, you know, to someone wide and then look to hit the violin and then put a cross in. So, I think the way that we're playing reflects this this massive gap in coaching styles between what we've seen from Conte, Sari, and and from from Lampard. So, you know, when we're looking at how far they are along in terms of you know this kind of new philosophy, for me the the biggest issue is that there has been no middle ground, and I'm not sure if if Lampard is. Is, is overrating the squad's ability to play in a slightly less structured fashion. Um, you know, if you think back to the beginning of the season, when I think teams came to Chelsea and didn't quite respect the the squad or the, the team that we had because we had so many young players and we were playing in these massively open games and we were just smashing teams, you know, with with, with great combination football and, and all this sort of stuff because there was space. But now that there's this this kind of blueprint in play, this deep block to, you know, defend deep, defend deep in midfield, um, you know, and and the, the fact that there's no structure in terms of how we build the play out, there's no structure in terms of how we attack. I think now that now that you're basically relying on individuals to make the right decisions every single time, you know, we don't have players who have the vision of like a Cesc Fabregas or have the dribbling ability of Ian Hazard or or Diego Costa's ability to create that that little bit of yard of space and get a shot off. We've lost those special players. I think now what you're seeing is is this kind of very stale and stagnant attack, which. Is, is a little bit kind of, they've got too much information now. So I think that partly, you know, Lampard and, and, and co could really look to, you know, I'm not saying get some inspiration from 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 Sari and Conte, but I think they, they have to make a little bit of an adjustment in how they're coaching the team because without that structure in play, I think you're actually making a lot of players look a lot worse than they are, particularly in the final third. So from, from that respect, I'm, you know, we're kind of where I, I thought we would be. Um, I, I think the gap between having these players who have been very comfortable for three years in this structured positional play style of football to being in a lot more of an expansive open system. Yes, obviously the players are going to enjoy training more. They're going to enjoy playing with less instructions, but it, it's not necessarily getting the best out of them. So if we're talking about the rest of the season, um, you know, I, I think that having a bit more structure and, then, you know, in some ways being less, less ambitious, being less expansive will actually help the team in the long run because, 
you know, until you get in the the, the better players, and I'm talking about the real, real top players, into to play in those uh, kind of crucial roles. You're, I'm not saying we're going to go out and find an Mbappe or a Neymar, but those are the guys that can really play the off-the-cuff football, which is a little bit like what Lampard is encouraging a bit in the final third. So without that, there needs to be a bit more structure in place. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that for me has been the, the biggest biggest issue and not really the biggest issue but the, the probably the most notable thing that I've picked up on in the past couple of weeks where we've been beaten by teams that as you say you know 99 times out of 100 we would expect to beat them in, in regardless of, of what Premier League campaign or Premier League season we're playing in so I think teams have, have figured out this Chelsea team um, in terms of how to play against them and again you know they are right they are riding their luck in terms of allowing us to create chances but equally you know we don't necessarily have those players in to hurt teams as much as we have had historically so you know, a big, big thing for me is, is this coaching philosophy, which completely appreciate the way they want to play. You know, someone who's watched a lot of academy football over the past 10 years, I can see the style of play that they'd like to play. But until there's a realisation that this squad of players doesn't have that same pound for pound quality as what's in the academy, then I think we're going to see a lot of frustrating play towards the end of the season. So simplify things, even you know, reduce the decisions that each player has to make particularly when it comes to, to, to in the final third, have a little bit more of a set structure in terms of how we want to attack. And then hopefully, you know, we can, we can cement our position in, in the top four. A um, little, little bit of a long answer there, but it's, I've had a stream of consciousness going on for about four days now. So I thought I'd get it out on your podcast and then what else is. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we obviously appreciate that. Um, I guess a, a quick follow would be, because uh, you know, I'm picking up your point that maybe a little bit less ambition going forward would help balance out you know what we've seen to be huge problems this year when we transition to defense or we get counterattacked right so how in your mind and and i know that you're you're not the manager of the football club either but how do you (laughs) how do you keep you know it's it's a balance right how do you keep players engaged to go forward when when what they've known over the last few years is you know kind of that very structured system how do you take your foot off the gas a little bit without, I think, losing fan interest? And then, you know, how do you find a little bit more balance? If, you know, if, if one of our chief concerns from the uh, yesterday's episode was the, you know, midfield three of Jorginho, Conte, and Kovacic is, is perhaps not creative enough, then how do you find the right balance, Joe, if we're going to take our foot off the gas a little bit and play a little safer? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think partly it's... It's a little bit because we seem to we seem to chop and change to the the kind of the personnel in the team a little bit too much for my liking. So, for example, you know if if Hudson Adoy and Reese James have been playing together on the right hand side with a little bit more regularity, yes, they know each other's games from the academy, but it gives them some sort of familiarity um, and also a little bit more in terms of you know anticipation of what what each of them is going to do. I think at times where we where we chop and change a bit too much. In terms of, you know, Callum plays on the left, he plays on the right, William on the left, William on the right, Budasic left, right, whatever it's going to be. I, I don't think that we're necessarily letting these relationships develop within the team where, you know, often people, the easiest one to, to talk about is between a, a centre-back and their full-back. You know, there's, there's usually a very, very good solid understanding between the left-back and left centre-back, right-back and right centre-back. Again, because that's chopping and changing all the time, you know, Aspie's playing right back, he's playing left back, we're changing the centre-backs like every other game. You know, Reece James is, is in and out because of injury. I don't think we've necessarily had a period of time where we've been able to let the, the sort of selection kind of solidify itself and consolidate it a little bit on the on the, on the the kind of the real key positions for what we're trying to do. In terms of the, the sort of midfield composition, it's a difficult one because, you know, I think a lot of people seem to think that Chelsea have great, great strength in depth in midfield. I'm a little bit on the contrary to that. I think it's actually one of our weakest areas because when we look at how we play in particularly sort of week to week, there isn't a midfield composition of, of people that for me starts by default every single game. You know, Liverpool have Henderson, Fabinho and Wijnaldum. They, they play, uh, they play their own, you know, they play to their own strengths, but they also have the ability to play against any opposition. And I think Chelsea at the moment, you know, you have a, a big game midfield that can control the game, which is your Kante, Kovacic and, and Jorginho three in midfield are good against your Liverpools. And, you know, they, they seem to have a little bit more control in there, but equally now, you know, when we're playing teams where we're expected to be on the front foot, that, that midfield is so passive and offers absolutely nothing in terms of attacking. So again, you're, you're taking away three attacking options just by playing them in midfield, just because they have they do not have the, in my opinion at least, the capacity to really add much going forward. So it's a little bit on the composition. I, I think that we we don't have many, um, what I would consider to be default starters, maybe 
you know, Reese James at right back is is a potential person now that, that could be if he, if he can keep himself fit. But you know, it's it's tricky to get that sort of you know that sort of real fluidity and, and cohesion and cogence in the team when there's so much dropping and changing going on week to week. And a little bit yes could be on Lampard for picking you know picking different players, but I think equally. You know, we alluded to a little bit in the last podcast in the whole game that there aren't many players, and we, we were talking about the centre-backs at the time, but there aren't many players who really week to week are putting their hands up saying, no, I should be starting every game. So it's a little bit tricky for him to to continue to pick players who maybe are not performing to, to the level that he would want to. But yeah, it's um, it's it's a, it's a difficult question, but for personally, I think it comes down to the consistency of team selection and at least allowing certain players in key areas. If we want to play with width, then... You know, you need to make sure that at least your wide players are more familiar with each other and have that sort of coherence and understanding um, when we play. And and likewise, I think in midfield, he needs to settle on a on a selection. If it's if it's two two different types of midfields, one for your your big games and one for your teams where you you know you know that they're going to sit deep. But there needs to be for me a little bit more consistency in what we're doing. All right. Well, I am am so on board with what you're saying there, Joe. And uh, I would say I feel like we are on pace for the roller coaster season that I was expecting. So, uh, you know, I think we've seen absolute highs. We've seen uh, abysmal lows, uh, but we haven't lost six uh, nil uh, this season. So uh, I think on the general positive enough, uh, we're going to take a very, very quick break. And then we're going to get into uh, a couple of key questions from our wonderful Patreons and discord, but we will be right back after that. All right, so you alluded a little bit to this, and we got this question from our our, our guy CFC Phoenix uh, in Discord. You know, so we'll kind of kick it maybe to you first, Joe. Uh, we also had a similar question from Mark on Twitter, but just you know, kind of talking about like the specific elements of the squad, where we're strongest to weakest. Um, you know, kind of you know that will key into maybe some more conversation next about you know who we should be going after from a transfer perspective in the the summer. But if you were to look at attackers midfielders defense keepers and you were going in order of strongest to weakest you know how would you how would you segment that out you know assuming everyone is is healthy you know because obviously we've had some level of uh, inconsistent health this season but if yeah you know, on, on the board if everybody's healthy how are you ranking where we're at Oof. um i mean the the only the only clear one that i have i, th- I think goalkeeper is clearly for me the weakest position that we have in the squad and it's a pretty big one to, to have as your as your weakest player when you've got millions, I think about 14 to 15 million pound amortised each year tied up in in your number one goalkeeper. Um, and I think that both importance because I'm not I'm not sold on Kepa, but also you know the, the confidence that he he is meant to give to the players in front of him when we have a little bit of a haphazard team selection is is also for me. There's a little bit of a knock on effect for having a, a bad goalkeeper in and uh, you know. I'm going to say that I think I think he's a he's at the moment he's a bad Premier League goalkeeper. He may be a good goalkeeper in the Liga or another league where you don't have to have maybe such a physical presence, but in the Premier League certainly I think he is he's genuinely a a bad you know if you're looking at a mid you know mid tier goalkeeper being a you know tenth or whatever for the starting teams for me he he's below that so goalkeeper is probably the weakest. Um, I would then probably go with. Probably the attack, so the forwards in general. Um, I think we have a lot of nice potential players in there. Um, if I'm looking towards the summer, I fully expect William and Pedro to not be here. So you really have what Tammy probably, um, Michi probably moves on as well, probably Giroud. So, I mean, you've probably got Tammy, Pulisic and, and Hudson-Odoi as your three players that are remaining at the club. And, and to me, that, that, is a, that is a position that's crying out for, for additions. Um, then probably I would say maybe the the, the defence, um, and I, the reason I say that is because I think that we maybe have two of the four starting sorted, but the other two, um, sort of fifty percent of your starting back four, I'm not wholly keen on. So that's quite a big number for me. And midfield, midfield may be strongest if I consider Ruben being back in the team, um, and maybe on individual talent. But again. That that is an area for me that I think also needs uh, it needs to go in a different direction. Now we've we've gone sort of down the kind of diminutive, you know, kind of playmaker technical route, and we've we've seen really that is uh, you know it ha- has its has its moments. But you know the direction that football is going, particularly if you're looking at Liverpool and other sort of teams of 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 that sort of stature, you know they they have physical players in there, they have athletes, they have players who can 
who can get up and down, who can pass, who can who can contribute goals. And I think that uh, our midfield for me is a little bit too passive, particularly without Ruben in there. So it still needs work. But in, from an individual talent perspective, it's probably the it's probably the strongest area. So strongest is uh, midfield. Then I would say the defence, then attack, then the goalkeeper. I'm going to quickly uh, jump in on this one. I think it's midfield. Uh, I think it's attack, then defence. And then, unfortunately, goalkeeper. Um, and without Brandon here to defend himself or the goalkeeper's union, uh, I feel good about that. Um, but I think to Joe's point, you know, the, the midfield dynamic does change uh, when a fully fit Ruben Loftus-Cheek is back. However, um, you know, it, it's it's almost just kind of that ranking that I put out there is almost just you know, kind of by design, right? Um, I think Tammy's done an incredible job this year. He can always be better in attack. You know, Pulisic has shown some flashes. Mounts, you know, shown some flashes on the wing. Callum is obviously getting back to full fitness, so that kind of brings that, you know, into into focus. But William's been consistent for a little bit and then, you know, kind of gone off the boil here, Dan. And, you know, I think to Joe's points earlier, like defense is – you could see defense being a huge strength um, in in the future, but it just hasn't kind of proven that out yet. Well, yeah, I think you, you look at the fact that you have Reese James, who's looking every bit like someone who should and, and have a long-term career at Chelsea, especially in that right-back position. You look at where Tomori has progressed this season. Um, there's, there's some confidence there. Obviously, you know, Asby might become, you know, one of those uh, rotational players next season, which would probably help elevate his game instead of having to play uh, every single minute of every single competition um, because he just, A, is, is available, but B, um, you know, just, just never gets to rest, and that can't be good for uh, a player who's a little bit more senior in his, his career. Um, keeper, obviously, a huge concern. Attack, um, you know, I, I might... On, on balance, give defense the nod ahead of uh, midfielders because I, you know, I just uh, I worry about how specific some of them are. At least I know that, you know, between Zuma, Rudiger, Christensen, one, one of them is going to be comfortable enough to start next to, to Fakayo and put in uh, a decent shift. Obviously, left back, a pretty big concern there uh, heading into the, the next transfer window. But uh, let us know your thoughts. Hit us up Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, wherever you find your way to get us a message, uh, let us know where you rank it. But you know, now as it relates to sensible solutions, because uh, we are nothing in terms of hot, hot takes. We are lukewarm at best on this podcast. <laughs> but you know, we got a, a good question from a friend, Dennis, asking if we had $100 million to spend on one player, who would it be and what would it mean for the members of the current setup? So kind of building on this idea of where the challenges are. Uh, you know, would you be spending it on a, a new keeper there, Joe? Would you be it a, the attacking player that you're looking after? And maybe you could uh, you could extend that to two players if you really wanted to. Um, I mean, I I really would like to get Jadon Sancho. I mean, I, I do have a few small reservations about how he translates to the Premier League. Um, I was reading an article I've been today yesterday just about how he ha- he has a slightly unnatural. Um, sort of big chances created to actual goals scored kind of metric. I think he, you know, he might have only created 14 chances like this season and they've scored like 13 times, which seems a little bit unsustainable. So I, I might have to have a little bit more of a deeper dive into his uh, his goals and assist numbers just to see sort of how they really stack up and whether he's just benefiting from having a, like a super efficient kind of Dortmund setup. But um, I probably, if I was going to be sensible, I would probably go and buy a left back, so whether that is a, a Tellers or a Grimaldo or someone who is uh, in the sort of 40 to 50 million pound kind of range, um, I would then go and buy, I think probably for me, a, a decent Premier League goalkeeper. Um, and I might even go and get Ben Foster, someone like that for one or two seasons, um, either just to take Kepper out of the limelight and, and send him on loan and see what happens with him there. But I, I have uh, a lot of... There's a there's a huge part of me that thinks that Kepa just isn't a a great fit in the Premier League, and you know it's a question of of just trying to take sort of cut your losses on him and and running as soon as possible. So maybe a, a Foster, um, a someone like a, a Tellers or a Grimaldo, and then 
Uh, I know it said one player, but if there's money left over, I would go and buy Sanderberg um, from from Genk and then and then have three players, which probably is around about 100 million pounds spent, who I think really really benefit the the team. What about you know just maybe you know kind of then expanding it out a little bit more, give you a little bit of a bigger purse. We're in the Champions League again. Uh, maybe we won the FA Cup. You know, funds are looking healthy. Maybe some more dream signings or players that you think are uh, obtainable that we we should be looking at should be going after. Uh, well, I mean, the dream signing is killing Mbappe, but I'm not sure. Um, not sure how realistic that is. Uh, Again, I mean, I, I like, I do like a few players. I, I do like Jaden Sancho. I do like Timo Werner. Um, I like Werner more as a wide forward though than a centre forward in the Premier League. So that would be slightly, maybe a slightly different position for him to play in. Um, I, I would have gone for, I would have gone for Haaland from, from uh, Red Bull when he was when he was moving because I just think that he's just a very special, special talent. And if you look at him, he's just built, he's built for Premier League football. So. Um, I would have I, one million percent would have would have tried to have gone for him. Um, yeah, I think I think Berg again is the is the big midfielder that I'd like to sign, and maybe Thomas Partey as well from from Atletico. So um, a bit more physicality in midfield. I think I would look for some some pace and some goals. So Timo Werner up front, um, and uh, yeah, I think those. So yeah, Werner and maybe a, a Partey and a Berg would would do me as a, as three players to sign. Nick, where where, where are you at? <laughs> I think. When the inevitable happens and Mbappe goes to Real Madrid, um, I, I would I would be smart about this if I were if I were Chelsea and try and get um, Jovic back, um, you know, and, and whether whether it's kind of a loan to buy or, or figure out some sort of solution there because he's he's clearly not going to play very often if if um, if uh, Mbappe goes to to Madrid. So I think maybe there's a cheeky signing there. I completely agree about Halan. I think he was unbelievable. And um, even early in the season, we were talking about dream signings. Like, I think he was, he was up there for me. I think he's just purpose built for, you know, and would be amazing for Chelsea. Uh, I would be seriously looking at some sort of wing option, you know, especially if, you know, William or Pedro leaves and it, it appears both could very well leave. Uh, that leaves us pretty short on options up front. Uh, and then I, I got to be looking at, you know, if maybe the most important position in the team that, that we're lacking right now is I think you have to go find whatever equivalent to Virgil van Dyke is out in the world. And, and you got to go find someone who, who can lead, who can be, you know, potential captain when Aspie um, leaves the club at some point and, and really solidify next to a Tamori or a Christensen a guy that will not be beaten um, very often. And I think that maybe if I had to prioritize all those signings, I think that might be the one, Dan, that, that I look at as, as the most crucial. That is a, that's a good shout. And I, you know, is it maybe um, um, Campo from, from Red, uh, Red Bull? I, I guess, you know, I, I feel like that player, that Virgil van Dyke equivalent, obviously when you, you think about it in global football, Joe, is there someone that rises to that level of the immediate upgrade who becomes our our top tier center back? Obviously, Koulibaly is one that people mention a lot, but you know, from a price tag standpoint and what Napoli are going to ask for, may not feel like the best use of you know maybe limited funds. Yeah, um, it's a it's a tricky position to to actually go out and find. Um, I certainly agree with Nick that probably if you're looking at a transformative signing in, in terms of the impact that it could have. I think going out and getting a a very physically dominant sort of top tier centre half is 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 certainly the kind of sign that you're looking at someone to to put in the you know put in the in, in the position next to Rich James next to maybe Tomori and, and the new left back all of a sudden that that back four looks a lot better than than what it has done. Um I mean Koulibaly I think is the is the obvious name. Um I, I think Maybe again, I've only watched Napoli uh, a handful of times this season, but you know, I think he's still maybe at the level that that would come in and, and help Chelsea. Um, but there aren't really that many that sort of jump off the page. I mean, you're looking at uh, maybe signing the next generation. So, you know, Dayot Upamecano uh, from 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 Red Bull would be a, certainly be an option to, to come in. Uh, maybe doesn't have that kind of 
physical stature that Van Dyke has, but certainly has all of the Premier League traits that you would want. Um, in fact, there's probably there's a number of, of really, really good French centre-backs at the moment who probably would come in and, and, and help the side. Um, there's a guy who plays for, I think it's Mainz or Frankfurt. I can obviously get, get the two mixed up. Uh, no, Mainz called uh, Musa Niakate, who I, I really, really like. Um, someone I've watched for, for, for quite a while. I um, feel like he would be sort of the the kind of nice compliment piece to someone like a Tomori. He's, he's also a, a kind of very tall, athletic, rangy sort of centre-back, but he's a little bit more cerebral, I think, in his approach. So I don't think that there is, you know, beyond Kuda Bali and, I don't know, you could get into some of the sort of bigger-ish names. Um, there are a few players which I think potentially would, would be working, but they, they wouldn't be on kind of the blockbuster scale of signing someone like a Van Dyke. So um, not, not a huge amount of people that jump out at the moment. So I maybe look at trying to make a, uh, an educated guess on, on one of these, I think, French centre-backs that are coming through, because I think that they have a lot of talent in that position. And you know, if you can find one who has Premier League characteristics, who could complement a Tomori or a Zuma or whoever it's going to be, um, then I think that you're uh, you're going to be in a pretty decent position. Yeah, I I, you know, I like the shouts for some of the the goalkeeper names. I think especially the the idea of maybe a, a Ben Foster, or maybe even like a Fabianski for for a season or two to kind of bridge. Um, and some of the other names, I you know you know it's it's been interesting to watch you know Adama Traore's kind of growth this season. I think he adds a few more goals to his. Um, his total, maybe he's an interesting one. I mean, he has a, a seven seven assists in the league, three in the Europa League qualifying, so he could be an interesting one. Uh, Norwich go down, uh, Bundia in you know midfield from an attacking standpoint, I think would add something you know very different to what we have kind of uh, on the books currently. If we're looking at just maybe some outside the box solutions, and uh, don't know what your thoughts on on either of those players would be, Joe. Um, yeah. Uh... I think that the goalkeeper one is interesting because, you know, for me at the moment, actually, as much as this kind of goes against my principle of, of young players, but you know, having a absolute run of the mill border borderline average Premier League goalkeeper at the moment, I think, is an improvement on Kepa. Um, we're not talking, <laughs> yeah, that's tough, man. Not talking <laughs> about you know the kind of maybe the ceiling that Kepa has or the talent, but. You know, there's there's this metric that I, I kind of like in Europe. I think it's like this kind of on-shot save percentage. I, I can't remember the specific name, but there are 137 qualifying goalkeepers in Europe and he is 132nd in that metric. And it, it's, you know, it, it comes a point now where, I mean, you have to just, I think, you know, take off the the sort of the, the other mitts with him a little bit and just sort of start, you know, calling really what it is that you see in front of you. You know, he has... You know, if you look at goal, goalkeepers that are meant to are meant to save goals, I think he's, you know, I don't I don't think he's actually saved at anything really this season that you would you would maybe attribute to to you know a really top tier goalkeeper. Whereas you know you've got guys like Allison and Edison and other people that are worth you know seven, eight, nine goals a season to their team. Uh, Kepper is is on the negative side of that metric. So you know, having an average Premier League goalkeeper, and the reason I say average is that you know. There was an article recently, I'm not sure who it was posted by, um, it might have been from uh, Statsbomb or someone of that sort of ilk who compared the kind of volumes of shots and the types of shots and the, from the air and all this kind of sort of similar metrics that you have around shots. And, and actually, if you compare Ben Foster and Norwich and Chelsea with Kepa, you know, the, the kind of overlap in terms of the, the sorts of shots and things that we're giving away are incredibly similar. And yet, I think Foster saved eight, eight goals and or Foster's made eight or nine saves compared to Kepa, who's made zero. So, you know, it, it's it's not just for me now, just a, a thing to just, I suppose, you know, kind of the, the sort of the fashionable topic to pick on Kepa. I, I genuinely think that he is a problem in our team that, you know, if we if we give up two shots in a game, it, it's it's a fairly high, you know, it's a fairly high percentage chance now that they're both going to be goals. And that, that that is not the sort of confidence that you want in a, in a goalkeeper behind you. So you know, when I say like an average Premier League goalkeeper, I do genuinely mean that the average Premier League goalkeeper, I think, improves this team quite significantly for the time being. Well, we will love to hear take. everyone's thoughts Tough. on that one. Uh, you know, again, Brandon not here to defend the goalkeeper union, but, uh, you know, he, he's even been a little bit more uh, willing to criticize recently. Love to hear uh, your thoughts again on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and our Discord channel. Uh, what are some of the players that you are thinking about that would improve the side that are realistic, right? We're not we're not going to sign the Mbappes or Neymars, but, uh, you know, maybe a, a Timo Warner, maybe a, a Jaden Sancho, 
maybe a Ben Foster. Who knows? Who knows? The opportunity is endless. But we have kind of reached the time that we've allocated today to talk about the chase, the state of the Chelsea Union. Joe, as always, just a round of applause. Well Magnificent, done. Magnificent, my man. Magnificent. Yeah, thanks, we, Jen. It's we been nice. Appreciate it fun. so much. Yeah, it was always always good to have you back. Always good to uh, let you uh, kind of just take us down a, a intellectual thought path with you and uh, and see where the the winds and uh, curves of your uh, gray matter <laughs> take us. And uh, always an exceptional opportunity to do so. But uh, we hope that you have a wonderful uh, evening because we are recording uh, morning U.S. time, but uh, getting a little later for you and uh, Nick. As always, uh, without Brandon, I think we we fixed it. We fixed Chelsea. That's right. We always do. Uh, Brandon adds, you know, some uncertainty into the mix. But when you and I have the have the reins, I think it's a lot smoother. You know. Yeah, when we have the conch. It's uh, you know, just it, it works perfectly. So we fixed Chelsea. Things are great. We want you to keep a blue flag flying high until the next time we speak. So just get on with it. Have fun, and uh, we'll catch you catch you soon. Keep the blue flag flying high.